0: Hi there, and welcome to the pre-Lenten issue of The Dishcast. I'm all excited. It's Shrove Tuesday. Well, not excited, but awaiting the season. And things are things are great. I Actually, I am going to have a little bit, or you can probably hear and have heard over the years, my nose, my nasal stuff. Well, I'm going in on Thursday for a quick operation. Well, I hope it's quick. On my... Right. No, yeah, my right nostril. Anyway, wish me luck with that. Before that, however, I also want to thank you all. We've had a big uptick in subscriptions since we put the podcast behind the paywall. We are edging our incredibly long-term goal of 20,000 paid subscribers, which we are very close to. So if you want to help us get there, Become a paid subscriber. We also now have around one hundred and thirty-five thousand people getting this every week, which is pretty wonderful and an amazing testament to the the open minds of lots of people who are interested in in having a uh, a no holds barred open platform for debate and argument in which we are not attempting to suppress anything or anyone, but try and figure out what on earth is going on in the world. Speaking of which. My guest today. Oh, and coming up, before I screw that, we have John Gray, the great political philosopher, coming up next week. We have John Oberg defending veganism. We have Kathy Young going at it with me over how we actually fix wokeness in the universities. Mark Liller, the great liberal thinker, and James Allison, a really wonderful and original Catholic theologian who's coming on to talk about how we bring Christianity into the present more effectively than we have. My guest today, however, is a political theorist, Aurelian Kriatsu, who, born in Romania, and has really created a career in examining the political thought of people he calls moderates, and indeed the entire political tradition of moderation, which I think is kind of one of the most critical traditions of political thinking that is in eclipse right now. And part of the reason why it's in eclipse is because people associate moderation with wussiness, blandness, mushy thinking, just the simple, even point, equal point between two extremes, when in fact, it is a much more interesting, diverse, and complicated subject than that. And I want to get early in to talk about some of the thinkers who have explored these themes over the centuries, and especially in the 20th century. He's a professor at Indiana University in Bloomington. His two most recent books are A Virtue for Courageous Minds, Moderation in French Political Thought, and Faces of Moderation, The Art of Balance in an Age of Extremes. And his forthcoming book, which he tells me will make him permanently homeless in political world, is called why not moderation letters to young radicals aurelian thank you so much for joining me and thank you also for these books which i have really enjoyed and and profited from well thanks for having me it's an honor and pleasure to be here especially to speak before uh, let's
1: say john gray or mark leela who are people i greatly
0: admire they are i mean john is i mean john is just like a fount of creative thought sometimes overwhelms me with how many different avenues of thought he's pursuing at one time. But anyway, we hope we'll get him to be as coherent as I can possibly do. Orion, right, tell me where you grew up. So I'm Romanian by origin.
1: I was born in northern Romania in a region called Bukovina, which is not far away from the border with Ukraine. Actually, the region is divided between Romania and Ukraine after the 1940s, and uh, I grew up a uh, good part of my early life in Suchava, which is a northern town, about 150,000 people, and then I did my studies in Bucharest, which is the capital of Romania, and I, um, I had Tell a me good who your, he,
0: Yeah. Who were your parents?
1: So my parents came from from a lower strata. My mom came from a peasant's family, and uh, my father came from a teacher's family. And uh, I, I was very lucky to get a very good education because uh, at the time there was that uh, emphasis on on studying sciences, and uh, I wasn't necessarily interested in that. But I was left to pursue my studies in in my interest in literature. And so I, I've, I've developed a, a passion for literature from early on. I was good at writing, but I ended up studying economics in in, in college, which is very awkward. And then I switched to political philosophy. So I it took me a long time to find my home, my intellectual home, so to speak. I grew up in a communist country, so I I came, say, with, with a very clear consciousness of the importance of ideas, being, you know, a person in, in 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 a larger climate that was hostile to free speech, free thinking, exchange of ideas. So I came to to appreciate very early on the virtues of what we call today the open society. And and I, I, I I'd like to joke that I, I became immune to the seductions of communism and other forms of utopianism early on because I saw communism in action. And th- that that was a lesson for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's always a sobering reality, isn't it? When you yeah. see yeah. Yeah, it's, an it, ideology it, actually played out in, in real terms. Tell me, what was it like growing up in a communist society? Well it's it's I mean speech. how much freedom did you have to pursue your intellectual interests? for example? It's an awkward, awkward answer that I'm going to give.
1: So I arrived in Bucharest in the fall of 1984 to pursue my college education. And at that moment, I I was very lucky to find a private mentor, someone who was not in the official system of education. A philosopher was educated before World War II, went to France and then returned to Romania. His name is Mihai Shora. He was born in 1916 and he's still alive today, which makes him 106 years old. Shora played a decisive role in my education. So I had kind of a two-track education. The formal one, studies in economics. That was, I think, a track perverted by ideology. We couldn't study, let's say... Classical economics. Classical economics. We studied communism you know, socialism and that kind of stuff. But then I, I studied with Shora on my own philosophy and I used to, to visit him twice a week for four years or so. And it was all in private. So he came back from France with, with a remarkable library that he shared generously with, with a few young people. And I was fortunate to be one of them. And we didn't have a plan for reading, but, but I got, I got, I got the good stuff. I got, German philosophy. I got French philosophy. I translated, as a result, Edmund Husserl's Cartesian meditation. I was all over the place. Remember, I was an economist at the time. But he always told me that that we should take economics seriously. And this is how one day I discovered an economist associated with order liberalism in Germany, Wilhelm Röpke, who was influential mm-hmm. in the promotion of the social market economy. So I read his book that opened up my interest in the history of economic ideas. So I came back to to the history of economic ideas. And from there, I moved on to political theory. Hmm.
0: So it took me a while, about 10 years to find my my vocations of this speak. Presumably at that point, when you found this man, he was quite, someone like that was quite rare, that if you could expunge free thinking for a couple of generations, you you actually have a chance of really killing his society for a long time and and but he belonged, people like him kept it alive yeah he belonged to a generation that indeed you know was obliterated by
1: communism he studied in the 1930s he was at the time the preferred student of Mircea Eliade who became a famous professor of history of religions at the university of chicago and then in Romania he couldn't teach. He was an editor, a man who came from France as a communist, and then he was cured by by the reality of communism of his, let's say, illusions of the youth.
0: So, so he he came back to Bulgaria, to, sorry, sorry, Romania as a communist, and then then the experience of living there kind of slowly I think so undid un, 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 un his his conviction. And so you're being taught by a man. Whose own ideology is unraveling in real time?
1: I think so. I think that's that's how I would describe his his trajectory. He he wrote a, a very important book in 1947 that was published by by publishing house Gallimard in Paris called On Inner Dialogue. It's it's a book that combines, in the spirit of the time, existentialism with Thomistic philosophy and a little bit of Marxism. So it was a concoction, so to speak, that very much represented the spirit of the age. Remember, this was 45, 47. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Parisian scene was very much uh, influenced mm-hmm. by uh, thinkers in the personalist school, for example, like Emmanuel Mounier and others. And I think Chora came from that, that mantle. Maritain as well, a little bit of Etienne Gilson and, and Mounier. A very interesting background overall. But to me, reading the books with him, books that were not available in the, in the public libraries was a formative experience. And I will always be grateful for that. And we, there must we were,
0: be some, there must be an extra thrill to reading stuff you're kind of not supposed right. to be reading. right. And in some ways, I feel like the people I know or have come across who, who struggled to be thinkers and writers under communism just appreciate and have a deeper sense of what it is to have. A free and open society in ways that many of us in the West are completely numb to. We 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 don't even recognize it when it's in front of us. That, that's true. And and I I felt
1: I felt at the time that we we belonged to let's shall we say Castalian order from Hermann Hesse's The Glass Pit Game, the novel. Like we were sheltered. We were trying to to resist the pressure of the outer world by reading books, books that were one difficult to find, sometimes censored, and, and we are resisting in a way. This concept of resistance through culture has been criticized, and today I'm very critical of it as well. But for us then, in those circumstances, it made sense. I would I would not recommend it again, but for me, it was a, a way to preserve my intellectual dignity. And I would say moral dignity as well to the extent to which you know, that was possible in those, in those days. But I, I, take, I take as a lesson here that books have a very powerful influence in our
0: lives. And- I do too, and one of the reasons, just to tell readers and listeners who are mad at me for being so concerned about the impact of these new ideas that are utterly transforming the American universities and the American political scene, the ideas matter, and, and understanding them the matters. And seeing how ideas have actually transformed societies is one of the most effective ways of making you a little bit suspicious of when big new ideas come along and seem to be sweeping everything before them. So it seems to me that it's quite clear exactly to me, reading your work, which is a defense of a resistance to this kind of totalitarian. Or monistic ideology really does spring to some extent from your personal experience. I want to talk first of all in order to clarify what you mean by moderation. I said I'd take, for example, Raymond Aron. Now, Raymond Aron was a, a great French intellectual of the, the mid and late 20th century. And you think of him in some ways as a classic moderate. And, but that doesn't mean that he just looked at everybody's position and decided, well, what's the middle point? Let me believe that. It, there were several principles involved in his understanding of moderation and yours. And I just want to go through them because he, he had, you, you, you say he had five key principles. And I think they're really helpful in understanding how we approach politics altogether. The first was thinking politically rather than ideologically. The second was commitment to a pluralist society of differing views, often very radically differing views. The resistance and refusal to engage in historical determinism, a belief that history can change and move. A, a fourth, a sense of the fallibility of human knowledge, of the limits of the human mind. And fifth, an a resolute opposition to any Manichean concept of the world in which one side is entirely good and one side is entirely evil. I wonder if you spell some of the, you know, take that in the thought of Aaron and show how he, how that affected his politics and what he was writing about in the 40s and 50s when he was in the middle of an extraordinary, and 60s of course, when he was in the middle of, was essentially a huge revolution in French political thought in which Communism really did become a very, very strong feature of the French left. I've been attracted to Raymond Daron
1: for several reasons, one of which is that he was a person open to dialogue, and he was ready to talk to people who did not share his views, such as Jean-Paul Sartre, for example. They both studied together at the Conormat Superior, and then they parted company And they were reunited just a year or so before Sartre's death in 1979. Aron commented on Sartre's works and other works, other people who were, let's say, committed to communism or Stalinism at the time, but they didn't reciprocate. Aron kept the lines of dialogue open. That, it's something that I always found fascinating, that he had that civility and the determination to talk to people outside of his bubble, so to speak, outside of his safe space. It was not a safe space at all because Aaron was attacked in the press. He was denounced wrongly so as an agent paid by the CIA and others, and he was always ready to talk. At the same time, I was looking at his position vis-a-vis the student revolts in 1968. Aaron was a critic of the students, the students' reaction in the streets, but also he was a critic of the French university system. He thought that it was a sclerotic system, a system that didn't have enough let's say resources to to continue the way in which it had been functioning for some time so he was he was in the middle, but he was both a promoter of reforms and a critic of the students. That fascinated me as well also what fascinated me was his metaphor of the committed observer, or as the French say, spectateur engagé. What is a committed observer? It's Someone who always does his homework before uttering a sentence or making a pronouncement or claiming something. Someone who starts from real facts, not from alternative facts. Many people were starting from alternative facts then, and many people still start today. Aaron was always informed. I've been reading a lot of his article published. He wrote two articles per week for 30 plus years in Le Figaro and L'Espress. two articles per week, two editorials. And it's very difficult to find stupid things being said in those articles. So you do the math, it's three thick volumes that contain all of that. And it is clear to me that this is a man who took his task very seriously. And he started from real facts, He he looked for opinions that were different from him. And he was not shy of saying, look, I was wrong, and I want to correct my views. All of these reasons, I think, are the ones that attracted me to someone like Aaron. And there's one other thing. He didn't seek to create a school of disciples. He had friends around himself whom he inspired, but he was not a proselytizer. He was not engaged in a moral crusade.
0: Yeah, that's that's an absolutely fascinating, because... The temptation, when you are countering people who are engaged in a moral crusade, is to is to absorb their energy and become their opposite, as it were, which is hugely tempting. So, for example, it would be quite it would have been very tempting to Amand to become a reactionary in response to what Sartre and the others were doing, but he didn't. Like Camus, and Camus was another figure here at the time. I think of Camus and I also think of Orwell in the same context, who are clearly men of the left in in many core ways, but absolutely resist the notion that there is one truth about the world and it must be applied everywhere at all times in the same way. They were irritating to the left Elites essentially, and why did not, why did Sartre and the others not engage Aron? How long did that non-engagement last? It the non the non-engagement
1: lasted for four decades or so, three and a half decades. And I can't speak for for Sartre's mind, but it is it is a fact that other friends of Sartre also attacked Aron, and Aron tried to reach out to people like Merleau-Ponty, Francis Jean, and others who were active in, in, in those debates. And, and much like Camus, for example, Aron suffered at the hands of, of, of people who were
0: committed to, a, 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 let's say, dogmatic form of Stalinism. But I think is How did they attack him exactly? What were the main lines of attack? From what I recall off the top
1: of my, my, my head here, I think the, the main criticism was that he was a, a dogmatic defender of capitalism. And he was a paid agent of the CIA. So there were like personal attacks and then at the level of, of ideas. Aaron wrote a very powerful work in, I think it was in 55, The Opium of the Intellectuals, that was a critique of, of those who were thinking ideologically and dogmatically. And they never forgave him for, for taking up on that. And he thought the left, the left to which he was attracted in his youth, he had been attracted to, to the left, the left had uh, succumbed to a few myths, the myth of the proletariat, the myth of the revolution and the myth of history. so he took he took on this myth that they were embraced dogmatically by
0: the left and he dismantled them and, and those are the lines of criticism how did he how did he suffer? You you use the word suffer. I mean, presumably, it's never it's never fun to be an intellectual and being ripped to shreds by everybody whom you whom whom you associate with or who is. But but uh, how did that impact him?
1: I think I think the word suffer is 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 perhaps too strong here. But he was always respected, even by his by his critics. Mm-hmm. He was taken seriously. He was known for being a serious intellectual. It just, but they didn't
0: engage a serious intellectual. But they didn't
1: engage w- with him. That's true. He didn't have a uh, academic career for some time. He uh, kind of straddled two worlds: academia and journalism. But by the time he was elected to the Collège de France, he was kind of very respected. In the seventies, but then he had a stroke in 1977, and that kind of brought about his demise in 1983. So, so there was, I think, the most critical period was between 1948 and 19, uh, let's say, uh, 68. Those two decades in which he was accused of being, for example, a man who had sold his soul to Charles de Gaulle. The relation between Aaron and de Gaulle is a complex one. Aaron was never a yes man. And de Gaulle himself, at some point, said to, I think, André Marot, that he's not one of ours, in the sense that you cannot count on Aron to defend whatever position you you want. Well,
0: the the truth is that no side could ever count on Aron, because Aron might actually have figured out something wrong with them and would never be afraid of saying so, right? I mean, now, on Algeria itself, he was a supporter of of decolonization colonizing yes
1: and 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 this is another another interesting topic He said that that the independence of Algeria ought to be granted m- on various grounds but on economic grounds as well. France cannot afford itself to continue to be a power colonizing algeria so that argument was was criticized by people on the left as being very callous it's not. It's not that, that they deserve to be free, which which Aron, by the way, believed they deserve to be free. But he said,
0: we can't do this anymore. It's- he would prefer to go for a practical, pragmatic reason not to do something, a political reason not to do something, rather than a moral or ideological. Uh- right. That, and he, he said, who
1: doesn't want others to be free? I mean, that's not the issue. The issue is, you know, how to go about it granting independence so he was ahead of the time he was right on on, since you ask on most of the issues of the day which is very difficult to be he was right on Algeria he was right on 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 Soviet communism. He was a, a friend of America. That was another criticism, by the way. People mm-hmm. accused him of being kind of an agent of Washington. But he was also critical of the what he called the
0: Imperial Republic. So he was not... He, understood he called the, impo- the United States an Imperial Republic? Yes, he called the what, Imperial what Republic. A, what, a, what a wonderful <laughs> phrase. But
1: he understood that the Imperial Republic had to play a very important role in the Cold War. And this is where he ended up criticizing Charles de Gaulle's position vis-a-vis NATO. De Gaulle was obsessed with, with Germany, and, and Aron understood very early on
0: that it was the Soviet Union that was the great menace. Hmm. Fascinating to me. Now, how would you think of Orwell in that context? Because Orwell was, well, he died obviously way too young, but but his position among the left intelligentsia in England was quite similar to Aron's with the left intelligentsia in France. Is that I think one? so. I think so. Yeah. I know I Orwell less than Aron, but from what I remember,
1: and he would have been a, a good character for my book, I grant you, along with Camus. What I like in, in Orwell, every time I read Orwell, is his insistence on using plain language, language, yes. that, language that doesn't hide, that doesn't have a secret agenda that doesn't seek to seduce for any purposes that, you know, you can think of. Use the language as plainly as possible and uh, start from facts again. So I think what unites Aron and Orwell is this commitment to facts and the plain language. You don't have to hide your thoughts behind metaphors.
0: As opposed to ideolo- ideology and newly created terms that seem heteronormative, gender-affirming care, all these other things that come up that Orwell would say, okay, what are you actually talking about here? What are you actually talking about? And let's say it in as Anglo-Saxon terms as we can. I mean, even down to very basic things like never use a long word where a short word will do. And I think that this, this is a, a good way to describe the attitude of, of moderates.
1: Moderates insist on speaking a plain language, not the language that seeks to, uh, let's say, hide.
0: Yes, absolutely. Now, tell me, at the same time, you also have in England, Isaiah Berlin, the great modern, in my mind, the greatest modern pluralist political philosopher. I mean, a man who defended, defended the possibility of there never being any single truth to rally a society around, who defended the coexistence of radically different ideas of the world within the same society that's a, a very beleaguered point of view right now how did where did how did berlin come to that position i've always been fascinated by berlin and i think my entry into the world of political
1: philosophy owes a lot to his conversations with an iranian philosopher ramin johan
0: which i read many years ago and tell me one, about that those conversations
1: i think it's it's a series of conversation conducted in the late 80s it was i think the book was published in 1992 in both French and English, it's called "Conversations with Isaiah Berlin." And uh, Berlin sat down with Jahan Beglu, who is a prominent Iranian uh, philosopher who was imprisoned for for some time a decade ago or so. And they discussed about his his intellectual journey as well as his uh, I don't know commitment to pluralism and and uh, other values. And I've always been impressed by uh, by the fact that Berlin came from Soviet Union, so his first years in uh, this what was then Leningrad, were formative because he, he saw the revolution in action. He was born in, in Riga, but then the family moved around before immigrating to England. So, so I've felt attracted to Berlin through through this initial phase in his life where he understood mm-hmm. the, the importance of revolutions and the, the dangers of, of revolutionary moments. But then to me, the, the most, let's say, plastic idea and the most fascinating idea in Berlin is 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 this, that the world can be seen through many windows. Some windows may be more fascinating, more appealing, more colorful than others. But the world is made of many, many shades, many colors, many perspectives. It's not Nietzsche's perspectivism as much as this idea that that there is no single principle around which you can form an explanation of the world. And this, this is pluralism, it's a pluralism of values, but it's not necessarily relativism. Berlin was committed to the principles of, of open society. And as he says, I think in in a, in a late lecture he gave in 1988, when he received an important prize in Italy, I think the prize Agnelli in, in Turin, he said that his ideal is a decent society. And this is what I want to emphasize. There's a difference between trying to think about a just society and a decent society. The standards are different and the strategy is different. And I think that Berlin can be seen in the context of contemporary or modern political theory as someone who put forward very powerful theory of decent society. And this is what moderates do. To, to, to try to build a just society would be too much to try to build a decent society is something that that we can all try to do, and Berlin, in his work, tried to do precisely that. So it's this contrast between a decent society and a just society that
0: impresses. That word, that word, decent, is also kind of important to Orwell in terms of of what he thinks is good about. But decency and just. So in other words, there's a kind of sense that total justice is elusive to human beings. It always will be, especially in a free society. So if we cannot do that, we can at least not be cruel, for example, which is which is and this is where Judith Schlar, who was I'm I was one, one of her students a long time ago, also emphasized. This is a this is a, a liberalism and pluralism that comes, you know, I would think when I think of the, the ultimate uh pluralist in this sense, it would be Montaigne, actually, in yeah. terms of curiosity about everything a respect for every set of ideas uh, but then subject them to scrutiny but a sense that i he doesn't necessarily want to come to some complete conclusion he is happy to leave the question open now what here's what when you say not relativism because that's what a lot of uh, certainly people some people on the american right would say they would say oh but Lynn, all these people they're just relativists they don't they don't and I would argue, and this is what I how I would put it, but I'd be curious to know how you would, that that there is there is a a pragmatic denial of the truth capital T, which is essentially about the validity of many small t capital truths, small t truths, plural. And that's it's the negotiation of these truths, and some of which are confl- conflict with one another, that is the, the central task of, of politics or of discourse in a civil society. I think, in that... other words, it's not it's not nihilist or relativist; it's sceptical and open ended. And you can you could say, for example, I don't know whether there is a god or not. So therefore, I will treat treat theological no one does. So I will treat theological statements as political orders. As something that just simply doesn't have authority because it, it can be disputed. I think the connection with Montaigne is is, is a valid one. By the way,
1: Schiller was was a great admirer of Montaigne. Uh, I know, and Montesquieu. Well,
0: she would she would go on endlessly about Montaigne and Montesquieu, both of whom, of course, are you know. I mean, this is one thing that you've done is is, is explore. The liberal tradition in French political thought, which is which isn't which is tends to be obscure. I mean, I think of Constant, for example, as a critical thinker, Benjamin Constant, in the evolution of Western liberalism. But let's let's keep on the skepticism and pluralism. So I, tra- I, I I do think that that be- Berlin had it right. There is n- almost no
1: possibility of demonstrating that a truth with capital T exists, but there is a way in which We need to make sure that we don't confound the realms, the the levels at which we, we, we try to find them. So, for example, if you look for, let's say, spiritual salvation, there is a religious realm that is open for that. But you shouldn't use political means to achieve spiritual salvation. The political means may create the conditions for a space in which some may try to do that and some may not. But to try to confound and and create like a religious political realm that would be one would be wrong. And I think Berlin understood that. And that's why he was fascinated, interestingly, by those who tried precisely to do that, such as Joseph de Mestre or Hamann. So what Berlin did, and I think this is perhaps one of the reasons for which we, we read him today, at least one of the reasons for which I read him today with great interest, is that he read the anti-liberals who mm. came up with these ideas that mm. were were attractive, appealing then, still mm. they are today, mm-hmm. and they they showed some holes in the liberal imagination. So I think that that the value of of the work of Isaiah Berlin today for us, for those who are concerned with the future of liberal democracy, lies precisely in examining what the enemies of liberal democracy or the critics had to say. And he took those critics seriously, precisely for the reason that I, I mentioned. But he was not he was not a relativist. And I'm coming back to your question, in the sense that he said very clearly that the, there are some standards that must be met no matter what. So the rule of law was one of them. But, you know, avoiding cruelty was another one. Cruelty in, in the extreme forms, of course. And uh, he, he militated for that. So he was, he was anti-communist, for example. But this is an interesting part of Berlin. He was anti-communist without the fervor of the anti-communists. I think my, my former teacher at Princeton, L.A. Ryan, once said that Berlin was as anti-communist as a Russian can be. And <laughs> I, would, I would add that he lacked the fervor of the anti-communists in the 50s that created a new faith, by fighting against communism. And I think Berlin opposed that while being committed to the principles of liberal societies. That's why for some, he was a kind of wishy-washy anti-communist, but I like his opposition to communism, which is a form of monism, because he thought that that was a great illusion. So it is in this space created by the dialogue between different values that he found his home, and I think that the, the most important contribution for us today is, is the fact
0: that he took the ideas of anti-liberals seriously. Which what we the, do today and as much we, as we, we tend not to, even though they are extraordinarily resurgent in, in in many ways, especially in the United States, on both the right and the left. At this point, the anti-liberalism is. What do you think was was Berlin's tr- deepest? Insight into the limits of anti-liberal ideology. What was what was the thing that he thought would bring it down? Could bring it down. He, <laughs> when he writes about Joseph de Mester, for
1: example, he's fascinated with the metaphor of the executioner in the mm. in in, uh, in some of the dialogues from St. Petersburg. But he, he, I think, he was. He thought that that anti-liberals end up with the, let's say apology of violence and kind of attack on human nature. And I think that, that those were the two lines around which Berlin thought that anti-liberals would, would go
0: beyond a certain a certain limit. That was unacceptable. Human nature. You mean that for example communists wanted to transform right. human nature into into a new realm of consciousness? Right? Or the Nazis would have some sort of racial consciousness. And human nature is something that can be observed empirically, or you can remember historically, or observe through literature. But it's, there is a common theme of what it means to be human. So in other words, he, he allowed some space for humankind in some ways to exist before society or before a politics. Also,
1: he was very fond of quoting a line from Immanuel Kant, if you recall, The Crooked Timber of Humanity. From The Crooked Timber of Humanity, nothing straight can be made. And I think this, this gives us a sense of what he meant by human nature. Human nature is imperfect, is limited, fallible. In a way, strangely, though, I don't think Berlin liked very much Karl Popper's you know, theory of fallibilism. They were close in in. in in accepting the fallibility of human beings there's nothing new under the sun here but i think this is an insight that is centered to all moderates the idea that that we are imperfect fallible human beings we have to work with what we have and and attempt to create a new man by the communists by the fascists by any totalitarian ideology is bound to fail because it is
0: anti-human nature Yeah, we're going to, as, for example, contemporary ideas that we are going to get rid of all, quote-unquote, supremacists in society, all inequalities in society are going to be disappeared through a relentless application of forced equality. That's what we're now, that's one of the big projects now engaged in the United States. And a moderate would be like, what? A moderate would say, look, the principle of equality is central to what?
1: It means to be a democratic society, what it means to live in a democratic society. Without a certain level of equality, we cannot exist. Equality pushed to the extreme leads to, to extremes. And this is a lesson, by the way, that was taught by Tocqueville in Democracy in America, another moderate. And, and coming back to our own for a moment, I found it extremely insightful that his last lecture he gave at Collège de France in 1978 mm-hmm. was entitled Liberty, and equality, not liberty or equality as some in the classical liberal camp might have been tempted to to call it, but liberty and equality. And Aaron ends his teaching career and basically his public career in 78 by emphasizing the importance of both being free and achieving a certain level of equality that was illustrated by the quality of being a citizen, being respected as a citizen. So it's civil equality, but also a modicum of economic equality. Aaron, towards the end of his life, was much more open to theories of welfare state than than before. So what I want to suggest with that is that for moderates like Aaron and others, changing one's ideas is not necessarily a bad thing. When facts change, one must be open to adjusting not radically, but maybe step-by-step step one's ideas. Keynes was asked what, or Keynes asked someone, what do you do, sir, when facts change? And the answer was, I changed my mind. Now, you can change your mind in different ways, but I think that Aron gives us a very good example of what it means to be committed to one set of principles throughout your own life, whole life, but also to to be open, somewhat flexible
0: to follow the ever shifting contours of reality. Absolutely. And that of course is is tough. I mean it's arduous. In some ways ideology is easy. You you've got your template and you apply it to every situation and you've cured it. It's it's succeeded. Whereas moderation is really hard. First of all it's not very emotionally satisfying, right? It it requires you to live with your own conflicts because you yourself are never going to be completely okay with one political position or another but acknowledges that you yourself are conflicted it also acknowledges that all solutions are really just preambles to another problem which is which was oakshot's profound understanding which is that Yes, we'll solve this problem. But as soon as you solve a problem that you think solves it, another one will emerge. In other words, there's this, this completely f- fruitless exercise to solve everything as opposed to slightly improve things or, or reform things or change things a little bit in ways that comport with the, 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 the tradition and life and coherence of a society.
1: Yeah, go on. And this, this is a distinction, I think, between thinking politically and thinking ideologically. Those who think ideologically tend to think by the book. There is a set of ideas that you can find in the Communist Manifesto, in another textbook, you call it, and you apply them vigorously. There's an algorithm from A, you reach B, from B, you reach C, and then eventually the final omelet. That's not how thinking politically goes. Thinking politically implies, as you suggested, Andrew, making constant judgments. There is no algorithm. You are, if you wish, like the funambulist on the cover of Faces of Moderation. That funambulist is supposed to make judgments at all
0: times. Otherwise... Tight, but, 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 but you mean a tightrope tight, walker? Tightrope so walker, yes. What did you call? Phenombulist. <laughs> That's the well, other... Well, Ladi da I think... <laughs> The tightrope <laughs> walker, just to translate that. Yes, no, and you have to judge left, right, you have to up, judge, down. You have to judge the, the, the winds,
1: the power of the winds. You have to always, and this is this is something that I really like when I, I bring up the, the example of the tightrope walker. You have to have a sense of direction. It's very difficult to go back. You need to be able to go forward. At the same time, you need to, to calculate the winds, and you also need a little bit of luck. Luck is something that that is is never, let's say, taken into account by political theorists, except Machiavelli, who gave luck a, a, a big room in, in the Prince. But you need all of this, and there is no algorithm. There is no no guarantee that you're you won't run out of luck, and all of this can work for you sometimes
0: or against you. But I want to I want to okay. emphasize- An analogy yeah. is a ship, of course, a ship on a sea, with no end in sight, and no fixed destination, in which you are attempting to go in a certain way, adjusting to the winds from time to time, and if there are no winds, luck again can can be very much a part of this. But it's a it's a it's a juggling act. It's 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 assessing your particular specific contingent position, because you can't apply a judgment in one case to a judgment in another case. In other words, these are not always applicable principles the other analogy he uses which is which is your one which is of a book he says that you know you can think of let's call the monists utopians of left and right or whatever governing society by an instruction book and he says that you'll have that instruction book and you'll you'll start governing and then after a little while you'll realize that all the people out there have done something a little different and so you have to make a little adjustment away from the book and then slowly they will then adjust that even further until you realize that you're having to correct the book every other page until eventually there's this moment when the ruler puts the book down and starts to actually govern, watching and observing the actual contingent actions and activities of human beings. And, and what Oakeshott would call it the pursuit of the intimations of that moment, the pursuit of what that moment in history, which itself is not part of a process it 's not part of a linear thing it 's a dramatic, not programmatic realm, and those are, those are that 's a, a very exciting contrast between drama and programs. <laughs> a drama can go any which way a program is already set to go in a certain direction. so politics is this art of extemporaneous improvisation a lot of. It. And and that's
1: exactly what the ideologues or those who are inclined towards ideological thinking abhor. That's what they do not like. It's interesting you mentioned Oakshott's resistance to any plan. I remember his critique of Hayek's, I think it was the Constitution of Liberty in 1960. In principle, he should have liked the book because they were all defending, both defending liberal society. And, And yet he thought that what Hayek did in the Constitution of Liberty is to put forward a plan, a plan to resist the plan. And and for Oakshot, that was an immoderate moment in Hayek's otherwise admirable position. And it's interesting that in my book, both Oakshot and Aron took distance from Hayek. And they, I I think, sense the same thing, that in this opposition to let's say, a command society, as they called it in the 60s, communist economy. In that opposition, there was an immoderate moment, which is an attempt to create a plan to attack another plan. And that's what moderates, like Aro, like Oshot resisted, because they thought, as you said, and I think that's the correct way, it requires improvisation, constant judgment, and uncertainty. And it's it's, at the end of the day, unclear whether you'll succeed or not.
0: But you have to make the effort yeah the other key thing that you the word you brought up before actually with some of these thinkers is the word salvation and I think it would be said that many of these thinkers were against it. It was at least on earth i remember and this is this is the one day I had in conversation with Oakshot himself where I asked him, so is there anything you wish you'd written that you haven't? I was at the very end of his life. Actually, he died the, a year later. And of course, it turned out he'd written a huge amount of stuff in private that was were soon to be uncovered. And then he said to me, well, I've always wanted to write about the notion of salvation. And he said, well, I mean, who would ever want to be saved? What a terribly tedious, bland, boring existence it is to have everything resolved to be saved, that salvation is, is, a, is a delusion. He didn't want to be saved. But what he did want in salvation, personally speaking, was what he was interested in. He said he was interested in the idea of salvation, which has absolutely nothing to do with the future, Which which suggested a kind of personal Transcendence of the moment, a kind of, and with Oakshot, there's a, a sort of somewhat Taoist Eastern influenced a reverence for being rather than doing, that of course is going to regard a grand plan to save humanity with extraordinary amount of skepticism, but also a temperament in a way that doesn't need salvation. Montaigne didn't feel he needed salvation. He was quite happy where he was. And Oakshot said to me, You know, if he thought if God exists, he wouldn't want to save humanity. He'd want to observe us and have a good laugh. He'd want to to see how absurd we are, how how weird our schemes, how dramatic our endeavors. Why why would he want to resolve everything? The whole point is that things are not resolved. They're complicated. They're complex. And we should enjoy that. We should relish it.
1: I think the the danger for me from my perspective would would come from those who want to seek salvation through political means yes and and we've seen that confusion between the two levels politics and religious throughout history in the 20th century thinking that the political movement can can bring about a spiritual renewal that's a dangerous path to go down to. On. And and I think that's that's something all all of the thinkers that I wrote about and all of the things that we both like resisted and would resist still.
0: Let's talk about a, a more even more contemporary figure who I found your treatment of really interesting, and that is Adam Michnik, the great Polish dissident who was who in a situation of really radical polarities, the communist society and the attempt of a civil society that had been you know, attempt to be extinguished under communism was reviving. And yet, like a lot of these people, deeply irritated many of the people on his own side. Essentially, he wanted to liberate himself, but he was leery of methods of doing so. Like he was leery of another revolution to undo the communist revolution, for example. Tell me how you fit Michnik into all of this. I mean, he is absolutely... Fascinating character. His writing is is complicated and in some ways restrained. Is it? I and mean, I think what he does for me is you say how you can be in favor of a cause quite passionately, and yet also say, but not this way, not that way, and not this way. And and when people say, well, what about the cause? He's like, well, we'll lose everything if we don't do it this way and that way and that way. And that's of course very irritating to people who are who, for example, in Poland were trying to fight a communist dictatorship. So that took a particular nerve when you're living under a communist dictatorship to say, yes, but no. Well, for me, since I lived in communist Romania for some time,
1: the example of Michnik...
0: Hi there. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you, too, for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.Sobstack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. You also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dishcast. So all those questions you had in your mind, can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. andrewsullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe.